See, if I were Calvin, I would go, Hello and welcome <laughs> to Diminishing Returns. <laughs> that's what I was thinking, actually. If it had fall- fallen upon me, that's exactly what I would have done. Whereas my instinct's more just to be like, She, 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 shine on. She, 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 she shine on. She, 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 shine on. She, 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 shine on. Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. This week we are taking on a seminal classic of cinema that it's uh, somehow taken us, what, two, three years to get around to? It's only our second Stanley Kubrick film ever, I believe, as well. What's that about? Uh, Yes, this week we are doing The Shining. It's because nobody's doing sequels to them. Generally, till now. Uh, Mm. Uh, I am Sol. That voice you just heard is Alan, and we are joined by OG... uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know what to call him. (laughs) We're joined by someone who's always been here. (laughs) Calvin Dyson. Hello, that's me. So The Shining. Yeah, The Shining. Uh, I don't really know where to begin. begin. Well, Sol, in in my mind, in my head... I've got you pegged as a big Shining fan. Is that is that incorrect? That's yeah, it's completely incorrect. Really? Because I I had that same perception. I know you've got a bit of a like thing for Kubrick. You've got a big fan of Clockwork Orange. I think you just like Clockwork Orange, don't you? You're not that big a fan of Kubrick. I don't think you're that big a fan of 2001. I I would peg Kubrick as my favourite director mm. in terms of in terms of how he makes films yeah. for the most part. I I love Clockwork Orange. Obviously, that's my favourite film. We've covered that on a previous episode. Go and listen to it. Uh, I also love Barry Lyndon. I also love Eyes Wide Shut, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Spartacus, Paths of Glory. I'm giving away all sorts of potential episodes down the line. Lolita, Doctor Strangelove, they're all great. I mean, you've just named Kubrick's filmography, basically. Apart yeah. from <laughs> The Shining. I don't like The Shining. I oh, actively dislike it. Now, this is partly because I do love the Stephen King novel, The Shining. Mm. So that that might be something that's clouding your memory Maybe, of how I feel yeah, about okay, the film. Yeah. See, that that's interesting because I, I've i got this pegged, uh, uh, now I've rewatched it as, uh, similar to when we did It, you know, a, a potentially excellent film ruined by Stephen King's writing uh, and inability <laughs> no, to form um, a coherent plot that makes any no, sense. No, no, no. Have you read the book? No, no, I haven't. Okay, this is a magnificent book where the writing is just pissed all over by Stanley Kubrick, and mm. I totally get how you'd get that reading from it, but I assure you in the book, everything here makes sense. The, the characters, the motivation, it's all very, very, very well thought through mm. and laid out. And uh, Stanley Kubrick essentially, uh, in a nutshell, just removed everything about what made that story make sense, but then left Mm. loads of weird little things in place that make no sense without any context at all. Mm. And you're left with just this incoherent mess of things happening that are kind of cool and scary, but ultimately don't make any sense or add up to anything. Well, that's definitely, just to sort of put my cards on the table here, I I felt this film is just, I mean... On a cinematic level, it's exquisite. The, the like the the visual oh, yeah. element and, and Kubrick's. We'll get into the details, but obviously he is a master filmmaker. 
But but ultimately, there was kind of didn't make any sense in terms of the plot. So that was what would let me down in terms of the film. I'll say one more thing that just encapsulates how I feel about it and then pass over to Calvin, who I'm really hoping is a big fan because <laughs> otherwise uh, it's it's going to be a bit one-sided. Uh, and obviously, you know, this is a very well-regarded film, mm. so I'm aware that our opinions are in the minority, but I'll get to that in a minute. But basically, I think this is the most perfect example of, and the most extreme example of, a bad script that has been well directed. Mm. It's badly written, yeah, but it's beautifully directed and crafted on a yes. technical level. Yeah, okay, mm. yeah, I get that, I get that. Uh, well, I do love it actually. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking do. actually, <laughs> thank God for that. I was thinking actually after I finished watching it, I was like, this is my favorite Kubrick film. And then I thought like, oh well, no, I I always forget that I really do like a Clockwork Orange, and every time I rewatch that, I forget that I said the previous time that I loved it and. Doctor Strange Love as well is a favourite. I was about to say Doctor Strange Love, yeah. Have you ever seen Lolita, Calvin? No, I haven't. I've got the Blu-ray. It's in my um, collection. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Need need to see it. That strikes me like it would be your favourite of his of his films for whatever reason. I don't really know why, but I don't even really. I think I I, I always forget Doctor Strange Love, and I think it's because it doesn't feel like a, I don't know. It feels like a very dialogue-driven, script-driven um, yeah. film, whereas from 2001 onwards, like, his direction and the cinematography just completely take over, and I, I mean, I, don't get yeah. me wrong, I'm well aware that The Shining is just... Uh, the, the plot doesn't really make any sense. Um, the characters make decisions that also make no sense. Uh, it's horribly miscast, yeah. but uh, we'll get into all these points. Um, oh, God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in detail. But yeah, as someone who's never read the book, has never seen the TV adaptation that came much later, mm. um, I'm a uh, well, I'm a fan of it, yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. When I first saw The Shining, I, it was one of the first films, like, big classic films I watched when I was younger. Probably before I even consciously really tried to get into film. I mean, it's that much of a cultural you know, mm. touch point that I think I came to it quite young. And initially it was very much one of those films where I didn't really get it, but I didn't dare say anything about it. I just kind of assumed, oh, it, it must be great because everyone says it's great, <laughs> so it's, the problem's with me. It was only really after I read the book that I realised how little it actually makes sense because the book makes perfect sense and then you realize oh well the reason it doesn't make sense in the film is because he's left this bit out and this bit and it's like watching the harry potter movies where you you go well what the fuck's that about and then someone goes well in the book it says this doesn't it and it's like yeah but a film has to stand on its own merits you can't rely on someone having read the book mm. and and it's fairly common knowledge i think within film nerd circles at least the the shining was panned upon its uh, initial release certainly in mediocre reviews yeah i don't know if it was panned necessarily but it was very lukewarm reception shelley deval got a razzie nomination for worst actor and i think that i was can't believe razzie that nod somewhere along the, the yeah. razzies are total nonsense though aren't they? It was never oh i know i know but but it's an indicator of what the general public yeah. thought of the film and it was seen as a cheap trashy horror movie and reviews at the time, you can go back and read them, they they are largely very dismissive and saying it's just a madman running around with an axe. And it, it's only with time and, and a bit of distance and perspective that it's become regarded as this classic. And my theory is that when it came out, I mean, it was based on a best-selling book that everyone had read. So I think 
I think the reviews were people who read the book and then gone to see the film and had thought, well, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and now it's got a bit of distance from all that, and it's one of Stanley Kubrick's films, so I think people approach it very differently, and it's sort of... I mean, I don't want to get all snobby about it, but I just think... I, I, I think a lot of people view it similarly to what, how I did when I was younger, where they just kind of don't dare question the stuff that doesn't make sense, because it's The Shining, and how could you possibly not love this this classic piece of cinema? But I think it's, and I'm, it's... you know, that's not to say... I'm sure a lot of people... Uh, or not I'm sure, I know a lot of people just love it in spite of it making no sense, as, as I'm sure you do, Calvin. I'm not saying that's <laughs> everyone, but I think I think the reason it's regarded as as mainstream a classic as it is is because a lot of people just aren't willing to question it. Well, I think it's mm. I think it's easy to see it as a great film because there is so much about it the the evoc- evocative atmosphere oh god the, yeah the music and and the visuals there's so much about it that yeah, screams the cinematography great film the editing that yeah that it's it, it's easy to make that judgment and kind of ignore the plot if that's not what you're bothered about individual scenes are masterful as well oh it, yeah it's it's just how it all comes together but yeah you know like the the the, the the room two three seven scene for example with the old woman is one of the greatest moments in horror that's ever been put on screen i would say you know it's terrifying i completely agree with what you said like i think i when i first saw it and that was years and years and years ago now i think i must have been early teens probably and just sort of getting into film much like you know yourself uh, and i think on first viewing you sort of come away of like I, d- I didn't really get what happened there. And then it is one of those experiences <laughs> yeah. where, you know, after watching behind the scenes stuff, reading about it, mm. um, interpretations. And I'm going to yeah. say that I certainly don't think that Kub- that a lot of these interpretations and um, symbolism, all that kind of stuff. I'm not sure how much of it was completely intentional on Kubrick's part. I know that he was, it w- wasn't Tom Cruise saying that he was like still editing The Shining when they were filming Eyes Wide Shut. Like that's... He he just <laughs> could never let it go. He could never get the edit perfect. Well, he yeah, he removed a scene from the ending after it was released in cinemas. Mm. Well, I actually wanted to ask you guys, which cut of the film did you see? Because the US cut of it, which is the mo- the one that's most accessible on home media there, is mm. different to the one that's most accessible on home media here. Yeah, I watched um, the US cut. Um, with the so that's like the two and a half hour pediatrician long at the beginning and all that. I watched the one that doesn't have a pediatrician at the at the start. <laughs> yeah, so you watch the uh, international cut, which is the one that I've got because mm. it, it's in the box set. Um, I I've seen both of them. I think the shorter one is much better, <laughs> but there is a lot of there's almost like I think it's like twenty five minutes or so um, of mm. cut material. It's definitely too long. <laughs> I mean. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, weirdly, I don't mind the running time. And I say this as somebody who doesn't like the film, but I, I don't ever find... I never really get bored with it because of its length. I only ever find myself getting bored with it because I'm like, well, there's no motivation behind any of this. Why should I care about this? what's happening? But in terms of the time, I, I do find it kind of flies by but when the, there's, watch it. There are a lot of elements, a lot of scenes, or at least parts of scenes where you're going, I don't, I don't need this bit, I don't need to know this, so this is nonsense, this mm. is just... But I, I quite yeah. like it in the sense that it, it it clearly evokes a sense of reality. It's sort of this kind of mm. dull, boring reality of this of this this <laughs> person, and I think yeah. that's deliberate. Yeah. And I, I I kind of like that that we go into the minutiae of how he's hired and 
Like, mm. I, I honestly think there's obviously the iconic Simpsons Treehouse of Horror parody, The Shining. You mean Shining? Shh! You wanna get sued? And that manages to do a better job of adapting Stephen King's book in terms of the <laughs> character motivation and everything in seven minutes than this film does. Genuinely does. I'm, I'm not just being flippant when I say that. It's genuinely closer to the book and, and like does a better job of examining everything that's making the murders happen. And uh, I think a lot of that sort of stuff is also clouded perception of the film. I think a lot of people kind of retroactively fill in the gaps almost. To your point about the setup, Sol, because I think this is a good sort of segue into talking about the film, like sort of going through it. Mm. And um, I just want to talk about like the opening scenes and I suppose the casting um, as well, because these are very much tied in. Because I know from my rudimentary knowledge of the book that the whole point of the thing is supposed to be that this is a very normal, loving family who've gone to this place and the dad Mm. descends into madness. The mother is this sort of like cheerleader blonde character and she's just completely destroyed by what goes on and Um, obviously you don't have that when you cast crazy man jack nicholson and (laughs) uh terrified waif shelley duvall yeah that's that's not a million miles away from it in the book one of my big problems with the film is that jack nicholson is operating at one level throughout he begins the Mm -hmm. film as a horrible angry (laughs) madman who's Mm -hmm. very prone to anger and then he stays that way, mm. to the, <laughs> and then to, he dies. To the extent that in those opening scenes where he's being like interviewed for the, he's going to be the caretaker of the hotel while um, all the yeah. staff are gone. It, how Jack Nicholson plays it is like, is he planning on killing his family? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. He does exactly. not come across it's, it's as baffling. like, oh, he's you know, and what the hell is this book he's going to write? Is it supposed to be there to write a novel? We never get any idea of what that is going to be. Yeah, that that element with Jack Nicholson already being a bastard, I I quite like that. It it kind of turns it from this nice family that get affected by the paranormal to just a kind of fucked up social realism film. And the fact that there's a paranormal element is really the off-putting thing for me. Like, I just want to see a man go mental and kill his family (laughs) Mm. because he's mental. The way the (laughs) film shot, directed and acted in, I'd say, 80, maybe 90% of the scenes... It could all be inside Jack Nicholson's head. Yeah. It could all be a figment of Jack Torrance's imagination, and he just snaps and kills his mm. family for no reason whatsoever. There, there's one or two details that prevent that from working. But I'd like that. I think I'd prefer that as a concept if it if it worked properly. The book is it, it, it's a contender for my favorite book. It, it, it's a wonderfully written book. It's Stephen King at his best, and it essentially it's not that this is a loving family and he's descends down to madness exactly Mm. it's that jack uh or john as they call him in the book although i think jack is his nickname um Mm. he is a a recovering alcoholic Mm -hmm. and Mm. obviously that's something stephen king knows very well and can write about very effectively as a result but essentially there there's the whole backstory that you do get in the film where uh he had to basically go cold turkey because he broke Danny's arm uh, mm-hmm. by g- handling him too vigorously when he was drunk one day. Yet in the book, he's he's utterly repentant about it. In the film, he's kind of like, that fucking little brat, what a little shitbag, he had it coming. And in the book, he's repentant, and he, he truly sees this going away to this remote hotel where, where he'll basically have to go cold turkey and be away from temptation. He kind of sees it as his last 
resort, his last chance to make his family work and and to to stop his life falling apart. And and he ve- you know he's a good person who's done bad things essentially and is flawed, but he's a very well-written character, and he's very three-dimensional, and you really do understand his motivations, and he goes there uh, with the intention of writing about the hotel, uh, sorry, writing a play, but then begins to become fascinated with the dark history of the hotel as he encounters these ghosts and things, begins researching it, his writing begins to move towards writing about the hotel, Mm. um, itself so he's kind of got motivation to dig deeper and and what have you and uh the hotel essentially the spirits within it essentially very consciously manipulate him into believing that murdering his family is something they you know he'll do for his own good for his family's own good and it's it's really well written and very believable how it kind of slowly gets in his head but essentially it gets into a place where he thinks well there'll be spirits who live forever you know all eternity in the hotel with me and we go to these nice 1920s parties every night and have a great time and it's like heaven so from his point of view that's like his way of ensuring they have this like blissful eternity as you know ghosts as he's perceived it Mm. um so it's far more kind of you can buy you you can totally buy how he's brainwashed and brought down to this level and also he is an alcoholic so the fact that they're like getting him drunk and stuff has far more weight and power behind it in 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 the film when jack nicholson's like oh, i i could murder a beer it's like well that's just like a guy who's had a long day and yeah, fancies yeah, yeah. a beer isn't it? It, it it never really plays like he's got problems i think it is in the extended cut am i wrong alan it's been a long time since i've seen it but i'm pretty sure when that like um lady doctor is over examining danny at the start that is because he got drunk and hit him or something am i right yeah we do see in that scene shelly duval explains that he hurt danny pulled his shoulder out the socket by being too rough with him because he was drunk and hasn't drunk since so yeah it's very distinctly stated like he's off the wagon Uh, because he hurt his kid but yeah, it's not in terms of him and his character and the way he expresses it. It's not particularly as direct. Yeah, right. Well, that's it. I, I think the the real distinction there is that, like I say in the book, he's repentant and he wants to change for the better. Whereas in the film, it feels like he's a a kid who's been put in time out by yeah. society and he's getting told off and he's throwing a bit of a tantrum about it. Mm. Um, but the shining itself is a much bigger part of the book as well. Uh, Danny Torrance, the the little kid, is uh, a psychic essentially, he has some kind of psychic ability, a shine, mm. as Scatman puts it. And um, again, in the book, this is a much bigger deal. He, he's very much a kid who's got psychic abilities, can you know see things before they happen, has visions. It's not done as annoyingly as as you'd think. And uh, they really play it down in the film. I have seen the TV version of it, which is much more closely aligned to the book, as far as I understand. Yeah. So some of this is yeah. sort of like hitting with me, although I haven't read the book. Yeah. The end result of removing the shining element is that you just get this weird little nubbin of like psychic power bullshit that doesn't really factor into the film at all. Because really, all that psychic power stuff has. <laughs> 
the only purpose it's, it seems to have in the film is that um, Scatman Crothers knows to come and save them and then they kill him off. Mm. <laughs> it's yeah. like a big twist, shocking death. And obviously, again, that was one of the big changes. In the book, he he comes and plays a big part in helping them escape at the end. Mm. Um, but Kubrick thought he'd be very clever and just kill him immediately as a kind of, ha! Got you. I do like that, though, because I, I think it works on that level. It's like it's the big rescue attempt, and it's just like, ah, dead. <laughs> I like it conceptually, but then you're kind of sat thinking, we've just spent 30 minutes of setup <laughs> for that. Is that, you know, Psycho did it already, mm-hmm. so it's not even like a unique idea. I don't know, yeah. it just feels a bit messy. I guess it does get them, because he drives that vehicle to the place which then Shelley yeah, Duvall can use way to he also drive is, away. He yeah. also is the distraction that means he doesn't kill yes. her in the bathroom. Yeah, true. Yeah, very true. And, yeah. and Wendy is another big change, actually. As Carmen said in the book, she's much more of a kind of cheerleader, preppy, blonde type. but a sort of uh, Rebecca de Mornay type. <laughs> exactly. But she's also far more of a you know proactive character who stands up to a husband and fights Oof, back a bit. Not here. Shelley Duvall is much more of a screaming damsel in distress. and I love it, though. I, I love the way that, that that couple is and the way they interact, because the way that Jack Nicholson is fits with the way that Shelley Duvall yeah. is, the characters. Yeah. Because him being an actually an abusive, kind of threatening, scary man, she's the afraid wife who's too afraid to leave yeah. or she's makes excuses mm. for him or whatever. I think that's a very real dynamic. I, re- I, I like that, even if it is different. Mm. Yeah. And and I do think that she's proactive enough at, near the end and so on. One of Stephen... Stephen King famously hates this film adaptation of his book. And I agree with pretty much every point he makes apart from he says it's misogynistic in the way that it changes his character. And I, I don't agree with him. I, I think it just... Yeah, Wendy is much less of a strong, independent woman than in his book. But like you say, it, it, it's believable. It's it's not like it's not saying all women are like this, and she still, you know, fights back against him. She she's yeah. not just a complete a completely useless uh, woman when it comes to it. And she's not. She's, still, she's you know, it, it's. I think it's played really well because she's not a cowering kind of terrified. Well, not always, but then like for example, when she goes in and disturbs him, and and he's like. Every time you come in here and disturb me, I have to start again. He's ripping up the paper and... (laughs) Wendy, let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here... You hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whatever the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? And like she's terrified of him. But she's mm. but but he's not physically threatening. Do you know what I mean? Not literally. And so 
it, it, I love that dynamic between them and the fact that she is just scared of him. And I think mm, yeah. that's incredibly common and even more so in 1980. I think that's just a very common relationship dynamic, uh, the way that mm. men and women relate to each other. Also, to say that he was the one to say that he was the one interviewing for the caretaker position, he She's literally does work. no work <laughs> at all, apart from on his sodden book. Now that's I was thinking right? what a dream job this is that he's landed here, where he's just allowed <laughs> to be a, just right all day. Uninterrupted. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's the 70s for you, Link. So, I'm trying to think what else is different in the book. Ob- obviously, there are very different um, scenes. The 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 hedge maze is a creation of the film to get around the fact that they didn't have faith in their ability to realise a uh, mm-hmm. special effects correctly, sequence. Correctly from, done, yeah. Y- yeah, yeah. Uh, Good. What was could, it supposed to be like? The topiaries come to life, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, and it, it and it's very good in the book. It's you know, it's very much like you turn away and then turn back around. And has that bush moved? That you know, and it mm. it's handled really well in the book. But it is something where you think, yeah, I don't know if you could really film that without it being ludicrous and funny and. Well, have you seen mm. the TV version? <laughs> yeah, well, the TV version is bad and it is much closer but it's like it's it's a badly directed version of uh that same story so it, it yeah it gives the impression that the story is not as good Can, <laughs> shall we talk about the film uh, not necessarily in relation to the book let's sort of take it on its own merits one thing we have to point out is uh well the cinematography i guess but the particularly the kind of the mise-en-scene the framing the the fact of mm. how much the camera moves uh, there is a real. I mean, I know this isn't the first use of Steadicam, it's, but it was one of the most widespread pioneering uses of Steadicam, and they were sort of figuring stuff out as they went along. I think there's a lot of following, a lot of watching, uh, voyeuristic camera mm. work, um, which really does give that sense of the whole hotel is alive and watching you. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very deliberate. I think it works really well. Um, Mm -hmm. I I really like the way... I'm not a big fan of self-conscious camera movements, but this is all motivated by the scene. I do really like Steadicam stuff, uh, the way that Mm. that moves. So I'm a big fan of that. Oh, it's lovely. It is lovely, even when it's just like following like Danny as he cycles around the the hotel. Oh, God, amazing. Yeah, Yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Love it. And you just get a sense, because this this was a set, wasn't it? This was all in like Pinewood or something. It was uh, Elstree, yeah. Elstree, I just find that insane that like, and you see a lot of it on the behind the scenes documentary that Kubrick's daughter made of just like this gigantic set. And I love those steady cam shots where you do just follow him around and yeah. But that's why it's it's so sumptuously visual because Kubrick built the set. He could control it. He could like had these mad mm. o- OCD controlling weird personality that he has. He mm. he he could control it that's why every frame is beautiful every every shot is perfect and every mm. you know the camera moves into position it's perfectly framed there's a door frame within the frame or there's a window frame within the frame everything's symmetrical mm. it's beautiful mm. and mm. Uh, that's because he could control it completely <laughs> am i am i right as well in thinking that cuz reading up about the differences of the of the different versions of the film and stuff that the whole um uh, issue of aspect ratio because Kubrick deliberately filmed it in a 4 by 3 ratio, I believe, so that, I suppose at that time he would have seen, oh, every time they, you know, translate a movie to television, they have to cut it off at the sides or whatever to accommodate the widescreen. This, I believe, he deliberately filmed in that uh, the television ratio, 
Um, I'm not specific. I'm not sure if that was exactly because he thought, oh well, when it ends up on TV, it'll look like this, or whether it was another creative choice. But um, the Blu-ray that I've got's in widescreen anyway. So, but I'm pretty sure that the DVD back, you know, um, when I first saw the film was in four by three. I think it um, it annoys a lot of fans um, because I guess like you know Warner Brothers are thinking like, oh, people will complain if they don't get their widescreen ratio because um, obviously if you put a four by three image on a widescreen TV now which most of them are, they'd have bars at the sides. Mm. Um, anyway, I just, yeah, thought that was an interesting creative choice. Okay, so uh, what about uh, little Danny and mm. um, Tony, the boy in his mouth? Tony. Yeah. You ever had a boy in your mouth, Calvin? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the thing that annoys me about Tony is, and this sort of, like, with the whole Red Rum thing as well, it's yeah. like, he's there having these, like, conversations with Tony, and it's just, like, understanding perfectly coherent sentences and whatever. But then for some reason, Tony can't just say, murder, look out, he's gonna kill you. Instead, he has to sort of put it through Danny as Red Rum. Um, yeah. Is there a reason for that in the book, or is it just... It's been so long since I read it, I can't actually remember. I do remember that Tony is a much bigger part of the book, and if I... Mm. Well, in the in the TV version, Tony is manifested as a, as an adult male, uh, a young adult, sort of, is the, basically they're warning Danny off. He says, you have to get out of here. He's, like, trying to scare him away, basically. So... Very Stephen King. Very mm. Stephen King. And I think there's, a, there's, you... a, there's an epilogue at the end of the thing in which we see... Danny, 10 years later, graduating from high school. And I, I think, unless it was just by chance they look similar, it was the same actor playing older Danny who played Tony. Hmm. So the idea being that Tony is an echo of him from the future, come back to warn him. Oh. Oh, yeah, that rings a bell. That does ring a bell. Um, do you know who plays Danny in the TV version, Carmen? Uh Yes, yes, I do. It's the uh, Cortland Mead, I believe is his name, and he voiced <laughs> D- uh, Gus in Recess. And the only reason I know this is because every time we talk about The Shining, you talk about how ugly this child is, and how he really annoys you. Um, so I've had to do extensive research. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, though, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just wanted to bring it up. No, oh, no, no. I've, I've, yeah, I've just yeah. pulled a picture of him up. He is an ugly kid. <laughs> He's got that Danny mouth. Yeah. <laughs> In the film, though, he isn't. He's a proper angelic. Angel- uh, an- yeah, a little, angel- yeah. Oh, for God's sake! He- <laughs> He's very cute. <laughs> yeah, I think he- a really good little actor as well. Yeah, he he he. he- Got out of acting very quickly, though. Oh, did he? I was going to ask if he'd done anything that's, else. That's what working with Cubicle did to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly did it to Shelley Duvall, didn't it? I mean, I, yeah. yeah. God. I, I always I always confuse him with uh, Chunk out of the Goonies. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to try and get this the right way around. But I think, I believe the kid who played Chunk from the Goonies went on to become one of the most like eminent uh, entertainment lawyers working in LA, whilst mm. Danny Lloyd, who played uh, Dan Danny Torrance, is uh, a Harvard. No, that's not right. I was going to say a Harvard lecturer. He's not. I've just looked it up. He's a teacher of hard sciences in Missouri. Not quite hard as... sciences. Yeah, not quite as impressive. Not those soft but, sciences uh... for girls. What is a hard yeah. science? <laughs> yeah, um, isn't that like isn't that shit like physics and as opposed to like biology and isn't that like the, the huh. theoretical stuff or is it the other way around maybe i don't even know, hmm. I don't know. Mm, boring science 
That's probably why they have to call it hard to make them feel better about how boring it is. Well, that's that's what uh, Alan's lady friend did with him. <laughs> to get it. So it's a very laboured erection joke for you. <laughs> yeah. We so, we have uh, Shelley Duval now. I really mm. fancy Shelley Duval, particularly though sort of this <laughs> this era. This Shelley uh, Duval. This is like this. Is oh God! Have you seen Popeye? <laughs> yes. You'd love her in that. <laughs> Do you know what? I I had the thought when I was watching this just now. I had the thought at one point. Do I fancy Shelley Duval? <laughs> and then immediately I thought. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> oh, that greasy hair she's got all the way through, and okay, I think it's the hair's just because not great. But I, I like the dark, straight hair. <laughs> I like that skinny, big teeth. I love all that shit. Big eyes. I think it's just by virtue of obviously Kubrick doing his like million takes, and I know they were filming this, and he was really hard on Shelley Duvall, and you can see it in the behind the scenes stuff oh, yeah. that he just like like torments her uh, just horribly, and you know if she if you know if you spent like you know weeks uh, weeks at a time just crying and screaming hysterically on camera i guess it would just like wash you out completely because even yeah. when she's not supposed to be terrified and screaming and crying and stuff her face just looks so damaged yeah. um emotionally um that's why alan's into it yeah i find that really attractive <laughs> <laughs> i mean kubrick was famously horrible to his actors and i think shelly deval took it the worst out of everyone in his filmography so it's well, yeah, if he's I mean, if he is from a director's point of view if he's trying to create a victim then he's going to be horrible to her isn't he he's trying to create a distraught person well yeah but no, you could just hire an actress who you can just say act distraught and oh i'm not saying he should have done it i'm saying if he's trying to make some if he's the logic behind it makes sense uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, but uh, th- that all being said, I think she is, like, phenomenally good. Like, that whole Razzie thing still astounds me. Like, I just... I She's just a perfect portrait of just desperate terror. Honestly, re-watching it just now, I wasn't that impressed with the acting. And I kind of see where they're coming from. I think, I think whenever there's dialogue, I think she kind of struggles with it and Jack Nicholson oh, yeah. is just like taking the piss because he can't be bothered he's just like going the opposite direction she's kind of but then when when shit hits the fan and they're able to just amp it up to 11 and chew mm. the scenery and she's just screaming then yeah it clicks into gear and she's great but there's um, definitely some element of direction here as well because so much of it is this real staccato delivery with these prolonged pauses yeah. between the lines which is down to the edit really like you know cutting from mm. one to the other and just yeah very sort of emotionless delivery in, in in some ways and and i think i think it's a deliberate choice but i'm not quite sure why and i don't think it works mm. i don't think kubrick has much emotional intelligence yeah does he? <laughs> we've discussed this before he is obviously not quite in touch with other humans so uh the, the, there's um Scatman, and uh, if the, <laughs> if there is any like just human warmth to be found in this film, it's with him. I think I think he delivers a very uh, sweet performance. A very maybe it's just his yeah. voice. He's just appear. He just seems like a really nice, kind man. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. And like his scenes with Danny are really sweet, and he's yeah. I, I like. I, I'm fine if Shelley Duvall gets uh, killed, and if Danny can just go and live with Scatman for the rest of his life. To be <laughs> honest, I think that'd be better. Really, 
Yeah, he is. He's there essentially to to give some exposition for The Shining, but then obviously utilized later on, which in the film is kind of yeah used as a hoax. Yeah, which is okay. I think, and that's kind of one of my main issues that I touched on before is that what's the point in The Shining being here in this film because it mm. it doesn't really go anywhere. Like in the mm. book, it's all very in the book. And I mean, to be fair, this sounds like... There's no way to explain this without it sounding like fantasy nonsense, but it works, believe me, somehow it works in the book. Essentially, the hotel is operating on its own level of shine because yeah. all these murderous things happened, it created all this mental, psychic energy, all these ghosts live there, there's just something about the hotel and this site but it kind of needs to consume more like psychic energy every now and then to keep itself going and you know every now and then it it has people killed there and it sustains itself and and builds mm-hmm. this evil okay. and this energy and so when Danny comes along and he's this gifted psychically gifted little child it's like oh wow you yeah. know this this kid's got all sorts of psychic power we can like this is like a 100 year battery it'll keep us going for ages um, mm-hmm. So it essentially goes into overdrive. All the ghosts come out of hiding. It gives them all this new lease on life, and it's the, the hotel is essentially consciously trying to kill Danny on sight so that it can absorb his psychic energy into itself. That makes sense. It's got its own internal logic, and I, I do. When I watch the TV version, they're explicitly ghosts are explicitly saying like, "We he's so powerful. We want him. We want the boy." Um, mm. So that makes sense. My reading from watching the film was, you know, Danny has got the shining uh, and the, the the hotel has some sort of shining thing. So when he's there, he senses it immediately and, and is feeding off it. And then it gets strong enough that even Jack, who has probably got a bit of shining, it's probably genetic, he's got a bit of shining. <laughs> so, but because he's in such a high shining area, it's actually coming out in him. And then right, and yeah. it, it, it takes to right to the end before Shelley Duvall, who probably hasn't got much shine at all, uh, gets to uh, gets to see things as well. Which I don't like mm. particularly that she sees things at the end. I think it would be better if she was a shining free person. Mm. Yeah, and and like I say, the all this like shit that they see is explained in the book, and it baffles me that they kept that that man dressed as a dog giving a guy a blowjob in the <laughs> film because. What the fuck is that? If you haven't read the book, what the fuck is that even supposed to be? Mm, yeah. Mm, it doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> and and the, the problem is the film's actually... I think it's unintentionally quite funny in places. Um, mm. I, think it's also, I think it's intentionally funny in places, but there's a lot of moments that are really funny, and it's obviously not meant to be that way. And a lot of it comes down to Jack Nicholson like walking towards Shelley Duvall being like, Wendy, why don't you put the bat down? And then she whacks him, and he's like, oh, Jesus Christ, and like falls over. <laughs> it's like, well, what did, what did you think was going to happen, Jack? Like, really? Some of the stuff of her just like flouncing around as well. Because I, I guess that she she was just like tired. She was like really physically yeah. drained. But some of the scenes where she's running around with like a knife or that bat, and she just looks like mm. she can barely carry it. It's, yeah. Yeah. But that thing with the dog did freak did freak me out um when I was a kid. It's just I mean obviously I didn't know what like furries were then. <laughs> but, uh, it's just, it's just weird. It's just a weird thing to come across and the suit is quite yeah. scary and they're like looking at her like yeah, yeah what? <laughs> um 
Well, in um in the book, that dog thing is is explained there. That there's you know all these ongoing parties and things, remnants of parties of the past, and they're just these you know they sex were these parties. Two, yeah, that's it. It was part of a sex party. It was like a BDSM thing where one of them was being a dog in a collar and being led around by the other one. And what what a strange idea that someone would do that. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it, it's some I can't even remember. It's something to do with like Danny. Whenever he gets too close to that room, he you know he sees things and gets scared and runs away. It's mm. quite a big part of the book, but yeah. The most famous um, of the spirits are, I would say, like the withered old hag in the bath and the twins. Oh yes, there's something. There's something just inherently terrifying to me about a crone. I don't know what it is. <laughs> But I, I was thinking about this the other day, and it re- there's something about a, a withered old haggard woman that really scares me. I, I was I was talking about I was trying to explain to uh, I was trying to explain to someone the other day about this, and I was just basically saying, look, if was it your grandma by any chance? <laughs> I was just saying if I if I woke up in the middle of the night and there was someone stood by my bed watching me, it would be. Ten times scarier if it was like a withered old crone than if it was like a big beefy muscly man in a balaclava, and I don't know why that is because well, it doesn't make any sense. I got sense. my next prank worked out. <laughs> Have you ever seen The Witch, that horror film from a couple of years back? You mean the Vavitch? Yes, that one. Have you seen it? Uh, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. That must have shit you up, because oh, it god. terrified it, it, me. Oh my god. It flirts with being the scariest film I've ever seen, but it's just slightly too boring. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm completely with you on that. But yeah, oh my god, <laughs> yeah. like, there are some scenes where you just see this, like, <laughs> withered old crone, like, completely bullet <laughs> naked, and it's just, oh god. Mm. It's just really terrifying, and I'm glad I'm gay. I'll never have to see that. I don't know what it is, though, because naked men don't scare me like that. Like, sexy naked women don't scare me like that. It's something about a withered old crone. It's it's just, I don't know what it is. It's terrifying. So a withered old man, it wouldn't be a problem. No, that wouldn't be a problem at all. But what what about just like a withered, well, not even a withered crone, just like an old lady, like if Kathy Bates was naked, (laughs) like... I think a lot of people find little children scary. In this film, you're meant to find those twins scary. I don't think they're scary. If that had been nah. two little old women going, Ow, <laughs> I'd be like, like don't look shitting mad. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're actually a very small part of the film, yeah. considering how people remember them, how how much they've entered the public consciousness. Yeah. Well, oh, like, God, are, they, yeah. are they are they that scary? Do you like those little girls, Calvin? Do you think they're creepy? Because uh, I don't know. I I realized on this viewing that I. I just assumed they were scary because everyone acted like they were. And I actually thought about it this time. And I was like, you know what? I don't like these twins. I don't think they're scary. It's not like the girl out of the ring, is it? I think the edit is scary with like Danny reacting and then seeing them dead. And like how that is all shot and edited together, I think yeah. is scary. The image of them together, I don't think is scary. Not like yeah. the old lady in the bath. Yeah, exactly. And them mm. saying, come play with us, Danny, is less scary than when Danny starts talking like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm completely with you there. Oh, uh, just I... that, yeah, that old lady in the bath, she's just... T- oh. How they build up to that as well, that we don't see her attacking Danny, oh, and we just God, have Shelley Duvall yeah. coming and saying, like, oh my God, there's a... It's so well done. It's because it... There are two parts in the book that really stayed with me, and that's one of them. And mm. the other one is part a part that's not in the film at all, where Danny's out playing in um, like a kids' play area outside, 
and there's a kind of you know those tubes you can climb through when you're a kid and sort of oh yeah he's in one of those and and uh i think i can't quite remember i think some snow falls down or something over the edge so he's like in complete darkness in it hmm. and then he basically senses that there's something else in there with him and he like hears it like crawling towards him and he feels it grabbing for him and it, it's just the way it's written is the most like as he's running you know trying to crawl out of this tube it's mm. absolutely terrifying but i get that that's not something that would be very easy to film mm. <laughs> so mm. i kind of understand that it's not in there yeah. yeah interesting i wanted to point out here that um there's a couple of bits, a couple of elements. Uh, Lloyd, the bartender, and the woman in the bath, particularly Grady, to some extent, very Lynchian. Uh, not just mm. in the terms of the way the characters are portrayed, the way that they're filmed. Now, I appreciate that this is kind of predating Lynch to a large part, but I did read something that Kubrick uh, was screening a Razorhead for for the crew um, to give a sense oh. of at- the atmosphere that he wanted. Interesting. That really, particularly as we're talking about something we think is very skilled filmmaking that has lost the plot. I mean, that's Lynch, really, isn't it? That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, particularly Lloyd the bartender was just look that that could have been straight out of a Lynch. Yeah, film. because Lloyd is so deadpan and lifeless, that really does play well with the way Jack Nicholson is doing it, which is like his kind of his usual manic, yeah. uh, insane kind of misplaced energy. You know what I noticed? And hmm? I, I couldn't quite make it out, but and I, I, I tried Googling it. I can't find anything about this on the internet, which leads, leads me to believe that I didn't see it properly. But Because uh, this was the first time I've watched this film in HD, I think. Hmm. There is a sign in, on, on the wall at one point that appears to be written in something of a clockwork orange font that says... It looked like it said I program or I exam. Huh? And I oh, I, I assume that's a Clockwork Orange reference, but I uh, I don't know. I might be reading into something. I might have misread it. I couldn't find anything about it online. Well, mm. well talking of misreading things in The Shining, have you ever seen a film called Room <laughs> 237, a documentary? <laughs> I think I watched like half of it and then I just had to stop. Yeah. Yeah, you get too it. much. I haven't, but I must say, I did notice a lot of rocket ships in this film when I was watching <laughs> it. Today. Yeah. Have you seen it, Alan? Yeah, this documentary. It's essentially it's five people talking about their. Let me put this politely. Whack job theories about the Shining, <laughs> uh, and they're kind of interwoven and, and uses visuals to to demonstrate it. And it's actually quite an interesting little thing, but it is just totally nuts like the, the what people are reading into it and it's like even if there's like they've picked up on something like oh yeah that that might have been put there deliberately for, for a reason they've then expanded that into like this whole world of like some sort of conspiracy theory or something so one of the theories is that this is kubrick's apology for faking the apollo and to be fair uh danny is wearing an apollo 11 shirt at one point uh, a jumper <laughs> he is very weird choice of costume for him yeah because it's quite a distracting costume <laughs> it's like that's yeah. not what you would normally have. it really is after i saw that jumper i started noticing that rocket shape appearing in the film which i don't think was deliberate but you you do see like the the framing of chandeliers and things at times create a very similar kind of rocket shape see, if so you're looking you're, for you're it you're dangerously close to uh, the <laughs> <laughs> or it could be penises yeah, oh yeah, very phallic. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was one of the other a bit like rocket sex stuff. 
basically. Mm. Well, the blood in the elevator, that's that's got to be... They get there on the 30th of October, so that's denoting a month. So it, it's like a monthly cycle <laughs> of blood gushing out of the lift. And then mm. and then Jack Nicholson gets really angry and uh, like just snappy, <laughs> snappy with Shelley Duvall for no reason. She's just trying to help him be a good partner. And he's like, Wendy... <laughs> I do think the film is very interesting. Like, I couldn't sit through that entire uh, documentary. It was just a little bit too crackpot uh, <laughs> yeah. for my liking, and I was expecting something a bit more along the lines of a serious uh, reading. But I think it is interesting, nonetheless, that you can read all that stuff into this film, and I think it it speaks to a film that is a bit confused, and I don't think it knows entirely what it wants to do, what it wants to achieve, mm. and I think you know, Kubrick's non-stop editing of it kind of speaks to that too. But it it is beautiful and scenes are individually so well constructed that um yeah, I guess All these it, theories in this film that they're, they're they're all really predicated on the fact that Kubrick has an intense obsessive control over every tiny tiny detail in the film. Which, you know, mm. is not that is in keeping with his character. But it's just impossible. It's it's just not possible in the film world, mm. even for Kubrick, yeah. to be able to control all these elements and put all these elements into a film that they Yeah, yeah and, and and there's a lot of stuff it's so easy to read into this. Like when, when Scatman Crothers is talking to Danny, there was a shot I noticed where um Danny's positioned directly underneath a load of knives hanging on the wall as if they're like dangling above him. Yeah, it mentioned that. And it, it's one of those things where like you, you could completely read that as wow, this is a master of, of film who's consciously done this to show the the danger lurking above this kid, you know, what what's to come. But I think what likely happened was they just built a set kitchen and made it look like a kitchen and put knives mm. there and then framed it in a way where this, you know, it, I could believe either was true, but it, it's... That's very possible that he, yeah. that on set they've gone, okay, we're framing this shot up, this wall's a bit blank, let's put something on it. It's like, oh, do you know what? Put some knives on it because that's like very kind of murderous and cool. That'll kind yeah. of... Mm. Like, I, it's probably as deep as that. Yeah, and there's other elements that they brought up. They think, yeah, I can see. Like on set, you would go, oh, let's put this here, and that'll look good. But to it, you're not going to plan that ahead. You know, you know, it's not going to. There was too. It was too in depth mm. to really be realistic. Yeah, mm. yeah, and that's the thing. I think because, like we say, this film's so messy, and yet Kubrick is such a meticulous filmmaker. It's very easy to read stuff into it that isn't mm. there because mm. you just think, well, it's Kubrick. He must have meant for it to be there he must have are there any actors who have worked with Kubrick more than once <laughs> Peter Sellers oh yeah yeah he's in Lolita isn't he Lolita ah there must be someone in Spartacus who he worked with again or maybe not we're talking actors specifically are we rather than yeah I'm having to look it up actors Kubrick I'm I'm feeling like oh, I don't know someone in Killer's Kiss probably popped up later on or something Oh, there is quite a list. I think it'll all be like side parts. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's like, you know, the guy that played Grady and um, oh, yeah, oh, Sterling Hayden. Oh, yeah, apparently Kirk Douglas was in two. Well, Kirk Douglas was in Paths of Glory. The guy who was in Killer's Kiss was also in Fear and Desire, Frank Silvera. They were like his early, his early two, his first and second film, basically. Hmm. Well, um, so that's probably just having a team of people as you're like, 
coming up. Yeah. There's one actor, Philip Stone, who appeared in Clockwork Orange, Barry that's, Lyndon, that's and The Shining. Played Grady, yeah. Ah, right, that's the him then, yeah. But relatively um, small role, you can deal with him for a, a week or so. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it, like, all of these, like, Kirk Douglas is, like, and Peter Sellers are kind of, like, the only stars, I would say, there. Yeah. It's interesting, how, I wonder how Kubrick, because Kubrick in those early days, in the 1950s, you know, obviously he didn't have the same control he could. Did he just have to work within the system and then he got he got a kind of a bit more uh, controlling as he went on because he could, and he had the power, or was it just because he... He was becoming more like that, and fortunately for him, he was successful enough to get away with it. Hmm. Like, could he have carried on in this in the studio system? Hmm. Um, I think if you watch his early films, they're far more conventional and less meticulous, which would suggest it was a case of him being given more power. I think Spartacus is the first time he really feels like Kubrick. Hmm. Not to say that his earlier films aren't any good, but like The Killing and Killer's Kiss are both very, um, they're both very conventional film noir crime movies, and they're they're good, but they're yeah, not, yeah, yeah. you know, you wouldn't watch them and think, wow, what an absolute auteur <laughs> work, you know. Hmm. Uh, I've, I'm kind of out of things to talk about about the film. Um, the only other thing is like the ending that I think might be oh, worth discussing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the ending is the one thing. If I could kind of take the book and then put the ending, the very ending of the film on the book instead of the ending that they have, it'd be perfect. Like, merge oh, the really? two together. Yeah, the ending's very different. The ending in the TV version I saw it is basically Jack gets a sense of redemption. He ultimately saves yeah. the family, uh, but has to sort of give himself up. Um, yeah, I, I I like that. I like that he has a moment of redemption. Yeah. I like it, his arc's a lot more satisfying, I think. And well, he has an arc <laughs> in the book. Yeah. What did you think, Alan? Out uh, uh, in the miniseries, what did you think of Stephen Webber, the guy who plays Jack? I thought he was really shit, but then when he starts going mental, I thought he actually came out really nicely. But when he was just mm. trying to be a nice, wholesome husband, it was it felt very crap. But he really did the kind of nut job very well. Yeah. My my memory of him is that that performance is absolutely astonishing, like, wonderful. But I'm also very aware that I watched this miniseries when I was, like, pff, I don't know, 16, 17, and mm. I, I have a feeling that I'll not be as impressed with it if I go back and watch it. <laughs> I wouldn't. I, what I remember of his acting is that ending where he's kind of going back and forth like between being good and evil and you can see it all happening at once on his face and but when he when he goes evil and he's got he's been smashed in the face and his blood all over it's like it is very effective he does it really well but yeah, yeah. it's all the it's the first 3 hours of the thing where he's being like a you know it was, it was sort of pet cemetery level kind of acting it was that yeah yeah that kind of thing but yeah in in the book there's a a boiler for the yeah. hotel that's a big part that goes runs throughout the book one of jack john one of his only jobs really is to uh make sure that the boiler doesn't blow up yeah release the pressure every day and uh forgets to do because he's been possessed yeah so the hotel blows up in the, <laughs> in the in the tv series the literally opening scene is him being shown the boiler by the the current caretaker He's going. Oh, don't! If you you got to do this every day. If you don't do it every day, this is gonna blow up. You see this pressure gauge here? It's gonna blow up. <laughs> it's like, oh, I wonder if that'll pay off later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, essentially, the ending of the book is that he he. It's very similar, but he ultimately goes down to the boiler boiler room to relieve the 
pressure in order to save the family, kills himself in the process, the whole place blows up. But it's a redemptive moment. It's, you know, very big cinematic and the film ironically enough opts for something far less big and cinematic Mm. uh just having him freeze to death and then the bit that i love that isn't in the book is that you just get that zoom in on the uh picture the black and white photo and he's Mm. appeared amongst the guests and that that would be wonderful in the book because it would make sense there you'd understand why it's there in the film you're just like what (laughs) Yeah, I've no, I still don't know what that means. So are you saying the idea is that he's been kind of subsumed into the hotel and is now part of its history? That's what I read it as. Yeah, in the book, these he, he encounters all these ghosts and, and they're all murderers and victims of grisly murder, but they've all, they all kind of take part in the, the, the old parties and the old historical events. And Great party. Presenting as, yeah. So they're, they're all basically murder victims that the hotel's kind of consumed, but their spirits are pissing about in the hotel now and he basically just gets absorbed into that because he's died there the idea was that he was going to kill his whole family so they'd all end up like that but um because he's died he's there on his own and it it, it would work really well within the book where it's set up very heavily mm, but it doesn't clear. really make any sense in the film is it yeah because scatman will be there with him as well and he'll be having that's to... true that'd be awkward as fuck <laughs> Jack uses a uh, a roquet mallet in the book. Yeah, not a not an axe. Oh, really? Which I think I think is a bit scarier personally. The idea of being bludgeoned to death by a big spiky mallet rather than an axe. It's a you know minor detail, but whatever. We haven't really talked about the here's Johnny moment. I was actually, about to say we? that the iconic the here's most Johnny iconic moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah thing about the film. That's not in the book because it was improvised. Hmm. Mm. And people always act like it's this amazing. How did he come up with that? And it's like, well, he was just he was just referencing the Johnny Carson show. I mean, it's yeah. kind of it's a cool moment, but it's not like. But it I, is I like, mean, it... I think it's satirized perfectly when the Simpsons did it. Frankly, when <laughs> when Homer <laughs> when Homer goes, here's Johnny, and they're shining spoof, and then realizes he's got the wrong room. And then, and then he says, like... Oh, I can't remember. It's all American talk show hosts, isn't it? David Letterman! Johnny! Don't! David Letterman! Hi, David. I'm Grandpa. Don't! I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Marley Schaefer. And I'm Ed Bradley. All this and Andy Rooney tonight on 60 Minutes! <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> basically yeah <laughs> but I, I yeah it is like he's just sticking his face through and like announcing yeah. isn't he like it's it's the same well he, he he kind of does on the previous door where he sticks his head and he goes honey i'm home like or something yeah. like that um, yeah, yeah some some something about the three little pigs as well they obviously oh, yeah, just let yeah. jack nicholson like riff whatever the hell he felt like and it works you know it's Good on him. Did you, did you, have you watched the Vivian Kubrick uh, documentary that's on the DVD? I think it's included with all of them. No, I've seen a, I've seen a couple of no. clips, but I haven't seen the whole thing. No. It's one of the best making of, like, DVD extra features I've ever seen. It's just fascinating. And they show, like, you know, Jack Nicholson sort of, like, psyching himself up to do that scene. Yeah, and it's just, bit. like, really, really cool. It's, yeah incredible um it's funny because after talking about this i feel like we have a lot of the same opinions and um things that we like and things that we don't like and 
criticisms and all that. And yeah, I feel like our numbers are going to be so wildly different. Because uh, <laughs> like I said earlier on, like as a narrative, this doesn't really hold up at all. As a character piece, I don't think it holds up um, any kind of emotional journey. But I think it is just a really spectacularly filmed, edited, shot piece of art and individual scenes just have such like creepy imagery and yeah. great horror to them. Um that I don't actually mind that it doesn't all hang together on a on a bit of string throughout. Um so I'm gonna go nine out of ten. Well we uh, we've talked about this before in terms of my opinions that I you know the narrative and and the plot and characters are really the primary thing for me. And I I don't get bogged down in the visuals very much. The fact that I appreciate the visuals in this so much is testament to just how impressive they are. Uh, but I, I just can't get on board with the plot. Uh, so I'm coming down in a kind of mid mid seven. Mm. Wow. I, I I used to have this pegged as a six out of ten for much mm. the same reason, but on this rewatch, honestly, I just I just got so pissed off with it. <laughs> Cause I because I do love the book and it is such a middle finger to the book in in that very Kubrick Kubrickian way, but it's not like a Clockwork Orange where I feel that his version has its own, you know, is arguably improving upon the book in ways and and has its own things to say and so on. I feel like this is just a messy adaptation of that book, and I'm similar to Alan really. I I love the visuals, I love individual scenes, but it, I just found myself getting bored because there's no motivation or story or reason or rhyme to any of it, and it. it so I, I've bumped it down to a 5 out of 10, and I, I appreciate Ooh. that is quite harsh, but I also feel like if ever there was a film that needed a bit of a slap mm. round the face to bring it down to earth, it's this one, so fuck it. Quite a range. You just reminded me of something there, actually, Sol, in terms of a middle finger to Stephen King. Uh, on the on the Room 237 documentary that I watched, one of the things that got mentioned in amongst the, the nonsense was uh, obviously in the book uh, he drives a red... Volkswagen Beetle, right? He drives a red Volkswagen Beetle, and in the TV version I watched, he's got a red Volkswagen Beetle. But in the Shining film, he drives a yellow Volkswagen Beetle. But when Scatman Crothers is driving up to the hotel, he passes a, a truck that's turned over and has crashed on top of a red Volkswagen Beetle. So literally, <laughs> like that's been crushed. And like the, this, this documentary, the person was saying, that's just a fuck you to Stephen King. It's like, yeah, yeah that sounds actually. That sounds quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally buy that. <laughs> Was it did Stephen King drive a red a red beetle? Is that Probably, something? Probably you know what he's like. There you go, The Shining. There was a TV miniseries version. I don't know if you want to talk about that some more, Alan. I think we've 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 mentioned enough of it. It's yeah. uh, four and a half hours long. So if you think this one's too long, <laughs> um, felt very early nine. Well, actually, it was ninety seven. But t- TV movie type of quality to yeah, it. Yeah, it really but is. Not, yeah, it, it, it wasn't terrible. It has a reputation for being terrible because it's The Shining and, you know, it's Mm. like the shitty remake of this classic. And it's, yeah, it's not terrible. It's very watchable, kind of. It's not great, but it it, it is much closer to the book, but without bringing it to life very well. Um, Mm. The same way that the TV version of Stephen King's It is probably much closer to the book because the than the, the newer film, because the newer film just split it in half and took all the adults out but it's not as good an interpretation of that book in spite of being closer to the letter if that makes sense yeah well uh why are we doing this then there's a sequel coming out bafflingly but there there was a book wasn't there stephen king actually did write a book right yeah dr sleep well 
being a big fan of the book, I have read Doctor Sleep. I've read this book uh, very recently, actually. I read it on holiday. I really enjoyed it, mm. actually. It's um, do, do you know the premise of this this book slash film, the sequel? I know it's Danny as a, an adult, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I've seen the trailer. I mean, that's all I've got to go on. Yeah, right. so, you, so you don't know what the fuck goes on in the plot then, presumably, because no. the trailer doesn't really <laughs> explain any of it. Yeah, basically, it, it sounds like, oh yeah, that's a logical way to draw that story out but it sounds like it in a really but you're completely missing the point of what make made that film what made that story work <laughs> much as we we spoke about terminator salvation uh last week did we alan is that the order we're doing this in um <laughs> <laughs> and and i complained that it's a logical story to tell building off of the terminator movies but when you take away the time travel element and the the tie to the modern day and all of that stuff, it becomes something very different that doesn't feel like a sequel to that film. And so the the premise of the Shining sequel is basically Danny Torrance is a, an adult. He still has psychic powers, and there are psychic energy vampires that live off of the psychic energy and travel around America, like absorbing it from little kids <laughs> that they murder. And he ends up getting entangled in a kind of feud with them. It's like, yeah, I can see how that would be a logical story you could tell in that same world with the same pieces. But has that really got anything to do with The Shining? Hmm. Feels like it's leaning much more into the fantasy side of it. Kind of. But I tell you what, having read it, I really enjoyed it. It did feel like a weird tangent to go on but it well i guess it's not too much of a spoiler because it's clear as day in the film trailer that they go back to the hotel so i mean they do tie it back to the the overlook and they do tie it back to all these elements from the first film in quite satisfying ways and uh it was much more of a sequel than i expected really my my understanding when i heard that the book was happening and they were making this new film was that it was going to be much more of a a spin-off, like a jumping-off point, and that the film adaptation they were making would be more of a standalone, much like uh, Silence of the Lambs compared to Manhunter. It wouldn't necessarily right, yeah. be a direct sequel. It would just be an adaptation of the book. Watching the trailer, mm. oh, it, no, it's a direct sequel. <laughs> They're, like, cashing in on it. But fair enough. They they revisit Room 217 as it is in the book, 237 in mm-hmm. the film. Do you know about that? Yeah. Nope. They uh they changed the room number from two one seven to two three seven when they were filming it because the hotel for the exteriors yeah the hotel uh basically said well we have a room two one seven and we don't want our guests to be too scared to stay there so can you just make up a new huh. number <laughs> that we don't oh, have interesting well Sol you claim that but I've watched the documentary called Room two three seven and oh. in that someone oh. who is definitely not mentally ill said that <laughs> that's not true. And in right. fact, the reason that it's room 237 is because the the average distance of the Earth to the moon is 237,000 miles. Oh. It's actually about 238,855 miles. <laughs> <laughs> 237, obviously, is because Kubrick filmed the Apollo landings. Um, I really can't wait for this new film. I'm actually really excited. I 
I'm hoping. You know what I said before about how I wish you could kind of take the best bits from the book and the film and and have them exist as one thing. Hmm. I think that's kind of the approach the director of this new film's taken. I, I've I've heard him talk in interviews about trying to bring the two together as a big fan of both, and hmm. obviously it's following on from the film because they go back to the hotel and the twins are there and all this sort of thing. And I do love the idea of of playing with that iconography and and telling the story and 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 it's a tough one because there's something about Stephen King. He's just a phenomenal writer in terms of how easy it is to just take his stories in and go with them. They're they're so pleasant to read Mm. that you kind of forgive all the bizarre choices that he makes. Because the... The the villains in this new film, assuming they do follow the the book, uh, these energy vampires, they're a group of um, they're like redneck OAP people who ride around in RVs in America with like <laughs> Trump bumper stickers on their cars and so on. And the the book, I can't tell how on purpose it is, but the book seems to try to make them quite comical, really. They're like real apple pie eating, make America great again, hat wearing old people. It, it, it it's just mm. a very weird decision to make them the villain of the film <laughs> or mm. the book. And yeah, essentially, there's, there's a whole load of bullshit with a new psychic child who's the most psychic child in the world. And I, I'll tell you what makes it work actually really well is that Danny himself is an alcoholic and has, like, Mm. suffered with substance abuse problems. He's a recovering alcoholic, much like his father, uh, but again, it's something Stephen King obviously knows about, and Mm. the reason is he is plagued, he's haunted, essentially, by the things from the the Overlook, the ghosts, the the monsters and things. They still come after him, Mm. and he can numb his shining, essentially, by getting drunk. It kind of blots it out, and he doesn't have to deal with it. So it, it it's it's this very nice metaphor for drinking to kind of you know forget numb the pain and it gives Danny a, a lot of you you know how I love uh, characters examining characters as old <laughs> versions of themselves and yeah, seeing yeah. what they've grown into well it's mm. a perfect example of that it, it's like a really nice examination of what Danny Torrance might have grown into given what he grew up with, given what he'd been through, and given the the universe he exists in. So I don't really know what this new film's going to be like, because it, it it's such a weird departure from just being a kind of haunted house story. But I don't know, we're in it we're in we're riding a crest of good Stephen King adaptations and people who seem to understand what makes Stephen King work. And I do really like what the director's done in the past. He, um, mm. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He, he made, well, he made the Ouija sequel that apparently was good. I've still not seen it. Mm. Do you remember this? There was a, a film called Ouija that everyone hated. Yeah, and... I think I was lobbying for us to cover it on the podcast one, at one point. <laughs> uh. Well, apparently the sequel came out and everyone was like, what the fuck? It's good. <laughs> apparently they actually tried. Then he made uh, Gerald's Game, which was a Netflix original Stephen King adaptation. I don't know if you've seen that, either of you, but it was actually no. decent. Not bad. But most importantly, I would say, he directed, I think all of, certainly the vast majority of, The Haunting of Hill House for Netflix. Yeah. I don't know if you've watched that, but it's oh yes, it's pretty magnificently well directed as far as television goes, as far as this kind of horror goes. Yeah, yeah. 
it makes me and it, it's very Stephen King inspired. It has his DNA all over it, even though it's obviously based on a book that predates him significantly. Mm. Um, I don't know. I have high hopes. I I think he might pull this off. <laughs> um, I have I have fewer hopes. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not so. <laughs> it just looks like a shit horror film, and I'm not like shit horror films. <laughs> Yeah, yeah well, that's, I, I, that's how I, would, I felt before I read it. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think it's a very unin- uninspired choice of director. Um, like mm. from the pedigree that he's from, it's like, oh right, yeah, he did Haunting of Hill House, and oh, he's done some other horror things. It ju- it feels more like a safe pair of hands rather than an yeah. interesting pair of hands. Not not to slight him too much because I I certainly don't think he's bad. But when you're going up against someone like Kubrick, uh, it, obviously it's going to be compared. It can't not be. Um, yeah. I'm just expecting a much more conventional film, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, yeah. But I know what you mean. He's n- he doesn't strike me as someone with um, that auteur's vision. I, I think it's going yeah. to be a lot more like he's emulating Kubrick than bringing his own yeah. flavour to it. But then I kind of... I kind of want someone who's just going to emulate Kubrick, to be perfectly honest. Uh, even mm. though I gave it 5 out of 10, I kind of want a sequel <laughs> set within that same tone and universe. Mm. There was a, another Shining sequel being developed for the longest time. I assume it's dead at oh. this point, but uh, before Stephen King wrote his book, Warner Brothers was trying to figure out how they could capitalise on this for ages, and they... They did um, announce at one point plans to make something called The Overlook Hotel, which was a, a prequel that had been written by someone and was being developed. That makes sense. I can see. That. Is this a TV show, did you say? Sorry. No, no, this was a film. Oh, I was thinking like in like the Bates Motel kind of sense. Hmm. No, I, I think this was this was going to be a straight up prequel to the, the original film. Because it just it set, sets hmm. itself up for an episodic TV show. Like, oh, here's another yeah. story of something terrible that happened at Overlook. Yeah, you know, makes different sense. Periods. You don't have to have any kind of continuing characters particularly. You can just... But I, I, I believe they had um, Mark Romanek signed on to direct it at one point. So, it, I mean, it did get quite far along before it just fizzled out. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you know him. He did um, uh, One Hour Photos and films like that. Ah. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, but I'm kind of, I don't know, I, I, I love The Shining conceptually, I don't know if it really lends itself to them telling more stories, but I really enjoyed the book Doctor Sleep, so I'm hoping I'll enjoy this, I don't know, see how it goes. Hmm. I'll, tell you what I, I'll tell you what I would do, I'd go prequel, Yeah, mm-hmm. it's exploitation. <laughs> oh, the Scatman Crothers origin. Dick, yeah, Dick <laughs> Halloran, <laughs> and then gets hit by an axe. <laughs> Do you think there'll be a Jack Nicholson cameo in here at all? I, yeah, I do. I do, really? actually. No, yeah. no chance. Do you want me, I, I think there might be like a digital weird oh. shot of Jack Nicholson in this film. Based mm. purely on the book, I, I, I think they might go for a digital shot of Jack Nicholson, probably fucked about with from footage of the original film. Hmm. Maybe well, some Jack like, audio hasn't... clips of him screaming from the film as well, like mixed in there. I don't think you'll get actual now Jack Nicholson in it because I mean he hasn't has he been out of the house for ten years. I don't I haven't seen him for a long time. I I don't know to what extent he'd be willing to sign off on uh, them using his likeness as well. That that's the big thing here. I'm sure they they would love to put him in if they could, and the book certainly gives them the framework to put him in there somewhere so 
Uh, I don't think he'd be above giving his likeness. I, I, I think he'd be, <laughs> yeah, all right Are with they it. allowed to just get someone to do a shit Jack Nicholson impression? <laughs> or is that the uh, the Crispin Glover law that doesn't allow it? You you can't do like a like a Star Wars ghost looking and nodding if it isn't the same actor because you'd just be like, well, who the fuck's that? So it's going to be hard unless they can actually get actual Jack Nicholson to do a cameo. So I don't know, but certainly with them going back to the Overlook, I think they're going to work him in there somewhere. Cool. Shelley Duvall, on the other hand, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, poor Shelley Duvall. Yeah. We haven't really. <laughs> if anybody doesn't know what's happened to Shelley Duvall, just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very best sad, to live in ignorance, it? I'd say. Yeah, yeah. So, any have you? Have you guys got any other good ideas? What you could? What you do do as a sequel? Prequel has already come up. Stephen King's books off the table. Um, but in the film, in terms of a sequel to the film, the hotel survives. It's still there and. You know, everyone's going to turn up in May yeah. and carry on with their lives. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah. It's kind of bizarre that they haven't pumped out more sequels. Just a new mm. caretaker every year, and every year they kill someone. Yeah. And they have to cover it up so they can get someone from next year. I mean, Kubrick's I been dead for about 20 years, so no one else would <laughs> be stopping them. I don't think Ki- I don't think Stephen King has the power to stop Warner Brothers making films based on this. So I know from um, some of the I think it was yeah some of the behind the scenes articles I was reading about that original ending that uh, one of you mentioned earlier on. Uh, the manager of the hotel, the Barry Nelson character, uh, was supposed to come back at the ending, and it was su- supposed to be strongly hinted that. He actually knew what was going to happen at the hotel, and then it's like, oh, is he a spirit at the hotel as well? Is this does this happen regularly? So, I guess that would be another way to go. Just make the hotel the main character. It would lend itself to TV, but I feel like yeah. that's almost too obvious, and it might cheapen it somehow. But then you I just use it as a as an anthology setup. It's like. To this week's horror story. It's all set in a hotel, but every week's different. It's a different period. It's a different. Uh, different um, characters, different genre, even maybe not. I mean, yeah. all horror, but different stuff. Well, I think the problem with that is there's enough of those already. We've got uh, American Horror Story, we've got Channel Zero, we've got The Haunting of Hill House. So I don't know. Mm. Do we need more? Mm. But then I, I, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd quite like to see a film following the immediate aftermath of Danny. Hmm. Maybe like a couple of years on, but you know, he's in like a. With a yeah. foster parent or something. Shelley Duvall's yeah. been sectioned. Yeah, but then obviously because he has still got this psychic power, it'd be very easy to write as he does in Doctor Sleep that these thing, the ghosts and shit, follow him, and maybe he has to return to the hotel for one reason or another. I, I think you you could do quite a closely knit sequel to it that works quite well actually. But um, like he goes to confront his demons at the hotel. Yeah, yeah. It is, like I say, it's fascinating they haven't done a sequel. It's bizarre, but mm. I guess they were trying for the last five years or so. They just couldn't figure it out. Mm. They got a sequel to 2001 out, like... Yeah. yeah. That, was that within... Yeah, that will, well, that will have been within Kubrick's lifetime, so... Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. Oh. Ding dong. Oh, what was this? Oh. Go, go open the front door of the hotel. No, Jack, no. Jack Nicholson's soundboard, by any chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's, a, it's a withered old crow. Right, Sparky, here's the deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Right, lads, it's me. Not no. seen you lads in a while. Calvin, when was the last time you saw a Japanese Bond? Last time I was on this show, I think. <laughs> so. I think that was the last oh, time I saw him as well. Quite a while oh. ago, that, lads. That was quite a while ago. I'll, I'll, I'll make it swift, lads. I'm just popping in. I haven't got much to say. It's very cold outside. Lots of snow. There's a big man with an axe out there following me around, so I'm getting a bit antsy because, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't like my odds. But uh, I'll make it swift. Mm-hmm. Basically, lads, just want to say a big, big thank you to Anthony Bischel who's uh, become a new patron of the arts. Anthony, is that Bischel or Bissell? Anthony Bischel with (laughs) B-I-S-S-E-L-L. Okay. All right. So that's it. Thank you, Anthony. You're you're a very top lad. Top lad. Excellent. Nice to have another patron. If you'd like to become a patron, patreon.com forward slash dim returns. For $1 a month, you get access to all our diminisodes, which are usually reviews of new films that have come out. And there's already lots of stuff up there. We've got some stuff ready to go. We need to edit. Um, but <laughs> we are. Yeah. We have had a bit of a busy period recently, so we are catching up on ourselves. Uh, so there'll be new stuff coming out there very soon. Yeah. Thank you, Anthony Bissell. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thank you. We're very bis at the minute busy biz we are a bit bizzle as snoop dog would have said. yeah we're very bizzle at the moment <laughs> but uh we are we are going to edit all that shit together like like alan said so your name is like a reminder that we'll have to do that so thank you all right the shining she 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 shine on <laughs> all right cool uh calvin thank you for joining us are you back next week Thank you. I am indeed back next week for the uh, as if this wasn't spooky enough. It's the uh, the Halloween episode, mm. which was which was done on a Patreon vote, I do believe. So. Oh, it was. It was. Yeah. Should have had Japanese Bond talk about that as well. But. So that is another advantage to being a Patreon. You can actually have your say. Democracy in action. Mm. Gentlemen, this is democracy manifest. Mm. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, next week then. Alright. Alright, bye. Bye. I know.